You know, we have a routine, right? I was thinking about this when I knew I was going to be up here this morning. We have a routine. We know that I'm going to welcome y'all, and then we're going to go into worship. And I just thought, hold on a second, hold on a second. I even put the phone away. Back pocket works better, doesn't it? Um, I just wanted to take a second and say, we really do mean that. We're glad you're here. And we all know there's going to be a rush of some more people coming in, and that's a good thing. Because we are enough, but we're welcoming more, and we like more enough is a good thing. But as we're getting ready to get into worship, can we just take a second, and wherever your mind is, I got about three hours of sleep because I could not unplug. Do you ever, can you identify with that at all? That, okay, well, there, wherever Lori is, I got, that's, that's my one. That's my sound. Can we just intentionally choose to? And that means whatever you read on Facebook, someone's perfect Facebook life or their cruddy Facebook life, whatever. Can we just on any of that and even on how we think it's going to go today? Because God is already here. The Holy Spirit is already residing in us. And then you put a bunch of us together. and So if we hear, oh, wait a minute. Jeremy will get me going. And we go, we want it all. Filled up, overflowing, we want it all. That means there's no room for our expectations that are just this small. We can say, God, we want your expectations. We want everything that you have for us, even if we don't get it. Even if we don't get it mentally, we want to get it. Does that sound like you? It sounds like what I in making an intention and saying, God, focus me. Unplug me from here and let my spirit be so in tune to you that any distraction is not worth the time or the effort. You are worth it all. Would you stand with me? We're going to, even in our posture, we're saying, <sighs> let's just pray for a moment. Lord God, we thank you that your expectations for us are good. Your plans for us are good. Your intentions for us are good. And they're not based on what we bring to the table. It's what you said is finished. It's what you brought to the table. And we get to sit and, and just soak it all up. So focus our minds, our hearts, and let our spirits be so in tune to you that all we can hear is your love and your truth to us. By our intention, we say yes to you. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for everything that you intend to speak to us today. We say yes to you, Lord, in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go for it.
ashes white as snow I believe in the power of the gospel still makes the broken whole I believe that the curse of sin was broken rolled away that storm I believe I believe oh I believe I'm bound before you, Lord. I will rise and come. 
Just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind. Because I know there is peace within your presence. I speak just want to speak the name of Jesus till every dark addiction starts to break cause I know there is hope and there is freedom I speak Jesus your
Yeah. 
Um, I want to share something that's a little bit challenging this morning, so, uh, so bear with me for a second, because I, sometimes uh, Jesus brings us nothing but gooey-gooey feelings, <laughs> and I love those moments. They're awesome. Um, there was a, a passage someone was reading in prayer time that says, comfort my people, speak peace to my people, and that's a good thing. We need to hear that. Um, but just checking on different people what they felt like the Lord was saying, because that's one of the big things we do at DCF is to really um, ask, Lord, what are you saying to us in this service? And then the next question is the disciples is, well, what do we do about what God is saying? That's true about your life. That's true about mine. That's true about our church. That's true about my marriage. That's true about a business that I would have. It's always two questions. Lord, what are you saying, and what am I doing about it? Because Jesus, the Bible says, my people hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. They won't listen to the voice of another, right? So you want to lean in. You want to hear what the Lord is saying to his people. We shared that this morning in, in prayer time. Um, Revelation chapter 3. Um, it ends with, hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. So he's always talking. And there's been an invitation. We know this for our, for our church. has been an invitation for churches around the globe. There's a season that, that has come to step into what the Lord is actually doing. We've come out of a long season of COVID and the brokenness and the hurt. We all know this. It's not new. But we're tired, right? But uh, if we're not careful, uh, you know, there's a passage that says strengthen the knees that have grown weak. Um, but how we do that is really important. Again, sometimes the Lord comes and he says, I'm just going to bring comfort, comfort, comfort. And then sometimes he wants to bring challenge. And so this morning, I want to, bring some challenge I feel like the Lord is bringing to us um, but the end of it is if we can hear this and be obedient to what the Lord is saying we can step into the fruit of what that obedience looks like amen does that make sense so um, there's a passage in 2nd Kings chapter 6 where the king <clears throat> the king of Syria is uh, battling he's come he's created a siege against the city of Samaria and the king during that time was King Joram, and he was Jezebel's son. He was, he was a bad guy. <laughs> and Elisha the prophet was there at that time, and he, he was seeking advice from the prophet, and the prophet said, you just need to wait on the Lord, and you need to do things his way. So then the, the famine comes. So there's an opportunity for Joram to, to uh, attack the Syrians preemptively. And, and the prophet says, don't do that. Just wait. See what the Lord's going to do, right? And he gave him clear instructions from the Lord. Hear what the Lord is saying, and then what are we going to do about it, right? So the story goes that right after that, there's a massive famine that hits Samaria. And there's a siege that goes around the city, and they can't get food. And so slowly but surely, it just lasts longer and longer and longer and longer till it gets really, really bad. And the way the Bible says it, it's pretty, it's pretty hardcore. They were literally eating their, their kids so can you imagine how bad it had gotten and so in this process the Bible says something really funny it says they were eating unclean foods the head of a donkey was selling for two pounds of silver that's how bad it had gotten inside the city so hear this the circumstances were absolutely overwhelming so I don't know how bad your circumstances have been lately but have you eaten a donkey head or one of your kids, right? Probably not. So in this process, again, I don't make light of it because, again, the whole point of this is they had come to the end of themselves. This is what happened. So the story goes, a woman yells out to the king, help us, O king. And the king says, 
you know, how can I help you? If the Lord doesn't help you, nobody can. Um, he says, what am I going to do? Go into the, you know, into the storehouses and bring out food that I don't have. So he's been a little bit sarcastic. Then he rips his, his, his garments and he's got sackcloth underneath, which is supposed to represent, symbolize that he was, you know, broken before the Lord, but he wasn't. Because the next thing he says is, if, if Elisha lives, it's not because I didn't do everything I could to kill him. And so he's going after the, the one who brought the word of the Lord to him. And he's pushing back in every single way, right? And he's angry with Elisha and he's angry with God. He wanted to do it his way and he'd listen to the prophet and the circumstances. He'd listen to what the Lord had said and the circumstances got really, really bad. And now he was looking at everybody and he was looking at the prophet and he was going, see? See? See the circumstances? What you said? It's not true. And here's what the enemy does. The enemy will allow or bring circumstances, right? He'll bring circumstances to your life that will put you in a position to question the goodness of God. And the Bible says that the, the only issue that we really have is the issue of unbelief. Everything else comes down to that, that particular thing, unbelief. Will you believe that God is good? Will you believe that he did what he said? Will you believe what Jesus did on the cross? Because that's the promise to you. Will you believe God? And will you do what he says? It's always what it comes down to. So the story goes, <clears throat> the prophet sends a messenger to Elisha to kill him. They won't let him in. He's with the elders of Israel, won't let him in. And then the king comes himself, and he's, he's going to kill Elisha. And he says to them, because they're complaining about the circumstances, he says, tomorrow, he says, a whole thing of barley is going to sell for basically pennies. Where before, an unclean animal head had sold for two pounds of silver. Tomorrow, grain and food will be cheaper than it has ever been in Israel. I don't know about you, but I could use a change in our economy. Anybody else? <laughs> right? That was the promise the prophet, he, he told them. And they balked in unbelief. And he said, because of that, you're not going to eat of it. So here's what I want, I want you, again, this is old covenant. So be careful with that because, you know, obedience was, if you didn't obey, then you'd never saw the goodness of the Lord. So thank God for grace and thank God for mercy because even when we miss it, the Bible says, even when we don't have any faith, even when we're faithless, God is faithful to us, Right? So we can grow in this. And this is a challenge for us as believers right now. What I sense is there are circumstances in people's lives right now that have gotten hold of you and you're believing the circumstances and you've forgotten the word of the Lord. Remember that passage we had this morning in prayer time was hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So will you hear what the Spirit of God is saying to you? Or will you hear what the culture is saying to you? The circumstance, politics, the economy, which voice are you going to make the loudest in your life this morning? So the story goes on. Four lepers are standing at the gate. That's what they said. Different attitude, but it's an interesting one. They said, um, if we stay here, we're going to die anyway. Because they're looking across and they can't see any soldiers in the Syrian camp. The siege against them. They said, if we stay here, we're going to die anyway. So if we go over there, what's the worst thing that can happen to us? We're just going to die quicker. I would rather take that. So they go over there, and the Syrian army had heard the armies of God on the wind and had left in such a hurry that they left everything there, including their food, their silver, their gold, their weapons, everything of value had been left there. And they started gathering it and taking it, hiding it, and realized that they needed to bring the news back to the people of God. So they bring it back to the king. 
And sure enough, because there was such a surplus that people were buying and selling wheat and barley for pennies on the dollar. It went from two pounds for the head of a a donkey to pennies for more food than you can eat. Now, here's why is that important? So I want you to hear this because I'm taking time. I really feel this is, is something we need to hear. Why is that important? You have to decide whose voice you're going to believe. And, and listen, at some point, I want to try to say this without being harsh because I'm saying it to me sometimes too. At some point, all your whining and complaining and being a baby, where's that getting you? So stop it. Because <laughs> it's not that you can't. Here's why I know this. The Bible says it's because of unbelief that we don't even enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? We choose not to believe what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So in our unbelief, we can miss everything that's been made available. It's not anything on God's side. It's all on ours. So I feel like this morning, it's a bit of a challenge, but I feel like you're in the place, you're in the valley of decision, the Bible calls it. You need to make a choice about who you're going to believe, about what voice you're going to be allowed to be the loudest in your heart and in your mind. And so if you choose to do that, here's what's so powerful. In one day, their economy had gone to people were eating their children and buying donkey's heads for two pounds of silver to there was more than they could possibly imagine and they had done nothing to harvest it or bring it in. Somebody had done it and brought it to them and the Lord had made everything that belonged to them now belong to to, to the people of God. Nothing, listen, nothing they had done to earn it or get it or work for it or, or harvest it or sow it or reap it. Nothing they had done. And in a moment, God gave it all to them for free. This is what Jesus did on the cross. Everything, every inheritance that is available to you from your heavenly Father is found in this. And this is what the, one of the captains said when, when the prophet said, Tomorrow, this is going to sell for this cheap. And this is what he said. Even if God opened a window in heaven, that would not be possible. You know what happened on that day when Jesus died on the cross? A window in heaven opened, and it never shut again. No demon can shut it. No person can shut it. The only thing that can keep what's in heaven from coming through that window to you is your own unbelief. It has all been made available, but you have to make a choice about what you're going to do. Will you hear and believe and obey from that? Or will you sit in your pile of ashes and complain and wail and whine? Or will you move in faith like those four lepers did and say, what's the worst that can happen to me? Can't get any worse, can it? (laughs) Right? It's time for us to step out in faith. Let me read you the the last phrase of this song. We're going to sing this song again. It says, I will build my life upon your love. Why? It's a firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone. And I will not be shaken. Have you been shaken? Part of what came these last three years, the Bible says that the shaking will come until whatever can be shaken off the tree will be shaken off the tree. And what remains is going to be God. 
that's where we are right now. So I want to challenge you, lean in with faith and say, God, as hard as it's been, I'm choosing to believe what you say. So Jesus, we come right now. We will build, Lord, our life on that window that you open on the cross of all of your love for all of eternity to be poured out upon us. Every good and precious gift, Lord, it comes down from our Heavenly Father because of what you did on the cross. Lord, you've opened the window for every inheritance for me, Lord. But my part in it is I have to choose to believe it's available to me and lean into it with faith no matter what the circumstances say. Lord, I choose to do that right now in Jesus' name.
as we get ready to go into this next song, just listen to this scripture. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Period. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. That's what he said. So what do we say back to him?
I just looked up what hallelujah meant, means. It is an exclamation and it is a noun. As an exclamation, it says, God be praised. It can be uttered in worship or as an expression of rejoicing. Hallelujah! You know, we've said it when great things happen. You win a lottery or you get through the green light and it, before it turns yellow or red. But it's also a noun. An utterance of the word hallelujah is an expression of worship or rejoicing. And as I was getting ready here, what, what came to my mind is when Adam was created, God breathed into him. The Holy Spirit breathed into him. And he has breathed into us as well. And with that breath that he gave us, 
what is proper and right is to worship him with that same breath. It's like, hallelujah. You are worthy. You are faithful. And he says that worship is fit for that king. I got the EBGBs. I could go on all day. And that's nothing compared to eternity, but we're in it now. Praise God. Can you say hallelujah with me? Hallelujah. I don't know about me in warfare. Can we say it as a proclamation as well? Do you mind? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In the quietness of your room, when no one else hears you, he loves your hallelujah. It also is about he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Such a good worship time. And I just want to say thank you for leading us. But you came prepared. You emptied your buckets. I know because I get to be up here. And if I don't prepare, I have nothing to give. But they have been faithful to prepare. And I just want to say, God loves it. And he will reward that faithfulness. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad we get to worship together as a family. And it's real. If you want to go ahead and have a seat, that's a wonderful thing. We've been standing a lot, but it's our little exercise. I got a little monitor thing that says, oh, you've been standing this long. That's good. Ooh, I need to take some steps and move my arms so I get some credit there, too. We just want to take a, another moment. We said at the beginning, but we've gotten some more people come in. We want to welcome everyone. We get all Twitter-pated when we see new folks, but we get Twitter-pated about all of us being here because this place is not the same. If Mark's not here, it's not the same. Dave, we kind of like having you here too. But it's true for every single one of us, front row all the way to the back row. You found your place, and you kind of get the seat fitting your body type, right? Just it's your place now. This is your place, and we're excited to have us all here. I wanted to let you know that one of the best things you can ever do, I don't know about y'all, but email gets lost sometimes to me. So I have learned from some of the tech folks that the best thing I could do is go in and make dothancf.com something that's as a VIP, and so when it comes up, I get an alert. There's a notification, and if you want an explanation, the people in the back are the people I go to for how to do anything tech. No pressure or anything, Jeremy and Jen. <laughs> but if you go to that website and become familiar with it, bookmark it, you're going to find out so much about what happens in this body and through this body and why we're here, why this family is here. You, we have a lot of things coming up. One that we're all aware of is Easter's coming up. Palm Sunday now. Hallelujah. But we have... It is Risen Day coming this next Sunday. And we want to say, here's a challenge. And I've already put someone in my brain. Have you invited anyone to come along with you? Have you invited anyone to come with you and be here 
for next Sunday. That's what's in my brain saying, I got to do that. And I can also give them the website and let them know, you know, this is what's going on. Here we are. Here's the address. Here's everything about it. But I had to bookmark the website. There's another thing happening for Easter. And I don't know about you. As When I was a young child, my mom got us all the little white shoe, patent shoes and three girls. So it was like we all had matching dresses. And most of the time they matched my mom's dress too. I don't know if that was a good thing. But next Sunday we are going to have something we did last year. We're going to have the photo uh, wall. So if you want to dress up, bring some people. We're going to have props. Galen's all set with us on props. So you can take funny pictures as well as serious pictures and then um, have a lot of fun putting them on social media if you want to and letting people see, you know, the people that you love. So plan accordingly. If you want to wear whatever extras different, go for it. If you want to come in your jeans, whatever works because we're real and we're family here. So I wanted to let you all know that another thing that's coming up in April 16th, and I know it's early, but it's worth it. At 8.30 in the morning, we're doing About Us class. And I recommend that we all go through it. And we learn a little bit more about what's going on. Dothan Christian Fellowship, what are, what are the intricate things that we believe? And maybe meet some more of the leadership if you haven't had a chance yet and see where their heart is. And we will all grow closer together. Even if you think you know everything about everyone, there's probably something that you don't know, and maybe it'll happen on um, April 16th. I think I'm looking forward to it. Isn't it going to be in our back room? So we'll probably have little, like a little pathway or something. There'll be people leading, and you can follow a flag like it's a tour or something. That all will go through like you're going to get a cup of coffee and take a right. There's a room that's designated and all prepped and ready for us to be there about us. Concerning about us, if you're a part of this body, let's invest in this body. And what I have seen, I don't know all the details, but I do know that this is a generous body. And you have a lot of ways to do it. We've got the good old box where you can put your checks in there. You can do it online, however you wish, but it is an investment. And what I'm learning is where we invest our finances is where we show what we have value in it. If we don't, it's like, well, you know, I'd rather go to the movies that's fair, but this body, what I have seen, it's a hallmark, is a generous body, and that allows us to bless other people as well, and that's a wonderful thing. I'm looking straight back at a sign that says DCF Kids, and Galen's getting ready. What we wanted to do is have our children, if we have some, I see some lovely faces. If y'all want to go ahead and get up, you're dismissed to go to your class that is tailor-made to you. And I'm seeing who, it's Galen and Lori, so it's going to be a hot time in DCF Kids Church today. So be prepared uh, to bring them down from the high when, they, when you get them back. Um, we are going to get ready in just a second to have Pastor Dave come up. But there's a little break in between while we move everything over. Maybe, maybe, just take a chance to look around someone that's not sitting in your row and just say, how you doing? How you doing? I'm doing fine. Oh, oh, I forgot. Sorry about one more announcement, but a lot of people know that Alan has been dealing with something called non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, N-A-I-O-N. Um, it's like an eye stroke. That's the down and dirty way to say it. Well, we have been to 
UAB, I don't know how many times, and we have received such good care there and great care here. We wanted to give you some good news because we are, we are believing God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything we ask or think. But he also says right where you are right now, be wise and do what you need to do. So we went and um, Alan was checked for a low vision clinic. And they said he is more than capable, more than legally able to drive in good weather. Could you imagine what that's like for him? Thank you, Lord God. He doesn't have to have Diane do all the driving because you know, you know what it's like to be that side seat driver. Sometimes I don't do it perfectly and, and that's got to be rough. But he gets to have some autonomy and go to work. And I'm just thankful that God is a God, not of just the creator, but he's the God of big and small details. And I don't think that was a small detail to you, was it, Ellen? So we're thankful, and we wanted to be careful to give God the glory, but to keep you all informed, too. So please keep praying. We want not just stability. We want full restoration, and that's what we're shooting for. So we're going to go ahead and transition and um, bring things over. And so take a moment and maybe look around and see who's around you and at least flash them a smile. How about that? Okay? Thanks. All right. Good morning, everybody. Transition time. <laughs> uh, do you invite people? Um, I say this every year, but there's something interesting about our culture, especially in the Southeast. If you invite someone to Easter service, um, the likelihood of them saying yes is really, really high statistically, even if they don't know Jesus, even if they're an atheist, doesn't matter. There's something about our culture that creates an, uh, you know, an opportunity for us to invite people. I've invited a bunch of people. Um, I, I, I go uh, to a coffee house. Most of you guys know Mural City Coffee House, my favorite coffee house in town. The rest of them are awesome as well. Uh, I just learned a long time ago to, uh, if I'm, you know, I don't, my job has Christians in it. Uh, my ministry has Christians in it. Most of my friends are Christians, right? So, so as a pastor, if you want to try to find somebody who's not a Christian, you have to work hard sometimes, right, just in your culture. So anyway, that's one way I do it is connect with people who don't know Jesus and invest in their lives. Um, you know, uh, one church made this phrase really big in their lives. It said, invest and invite. And I love that, and this is a great time to do that. So if you haven't invited someone um, uh, to Easter Sunday next Sunday, invite them. You know, again, we make it, we make, make it really good, and we make, it, make, make sure that we're aware that there are people in our midst sometimes that maybe don't know Jesus. And so we're careful to do a good job of making them feel welcome, doing everything we, that we do normally. So I want to preach a message today. This is Palm Sunday, but I want to pre uh, preach a message called, What Kind of King Did You Expect? <laughs> so, uh, of course, the story of, of Palm Sunday is, you know, there's a lot going on in Palm Sunday. Um, that means something to, to most of us, or maybe some of us, but it doesn't mean the same thing to everybody because it all depends on how you grew up. If you grew up in church, uh, Palm Sunday, um, Holy Week, Lent, all those things, especially if you grew up in a liturgical church, those things are very symbolic and they mean something to you, and maybe you know that. But I discovered that as a pastor, a lot of people have no idea what any of the, these things do. It's just like, you know, I've been doing it for so long, and at this point, I'm afraid to ask. You know what I'm talking about? So, but Palm Sunday has been around for obviously a pretty long time, like since the days of Jesus, of course. But as a church celebration, it can, it can be traced back to about um, 
1,600 years ago in the Catholic Church and then into the Protestant Church, the first actual um, uh, recognition of it was a pilgrim who rode in around 300 or so, had gone to Jerusalem and, uh, and had watched a, a Palm Sunday celebration where they walked through the streets of Jerusalem and they waved the palm leaf. So it goes back a really, really long time. It's a big, big historical church tradition, right? Um, so it's a historical celebration Passion Sunday is another word for it. Like I said, it's three, uh, uh, over 1,600 years ago. You can see this, this uh, celebration, this tradition in place. The meaning, of course, Palm Sunday, most of us know it, but it commemorates Jesus arriving in Jerusalem. He's coming in um, on, on, to celebrate the Jewish holiday of Passover. Um, the story goes, and we're going to get this in just a second, that he calls for a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, actually a, a young donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. So um, when he does this, as he comes in, the procession, people knew who he was. He'd been preaching in Jerusalem and around the area, and they were many, many people were recognizing him as the Messiah. So as he came in, they took palm leaves, put them on the ground in front of his, his procession into the city. Um, they would put their clothes out there, and so it was very symbolic, and this is what they said. This is uh, Matthew 21, 9. They cried out, interestingly enough, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel, and all kinds of different expressions of praise. So they recognized who he was. Some of them weren't sure. They, most of them recognized him as a prophet. Some of them thought that maybe he's the Messiah, and so they celebrated him as the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord was a, was a phrase that was spoken about the Messiah. So what was the significance of laying down the palm leaves and, 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 the, and the coats? Because so often we do things in tradition or, or we have a value system that comes from somewhere, but we don't know why we do what we do. You ever been guilty of that? I've done that sometimes. And so what's the significance of the coats and the palm branches? And so um, what would happen is when kings would conquer, they would come in on these massive, usually white stallions, or they would come in in chariots, and they would basically, what we would call today, laying out the red carpet for them. They would celebrate them and honor them, recognize who they are. There would be a procession into the city. Everyone would come out and celebrate and acknowledge that the king had come to rule in the city. And so in so many ways, this is exactly what they were doing with Jesus. A um, little bit confusing that he came in on a donkey. I'm pretty sure that they didn't miss the fact that he's not riding the horse. Because, you know, at some point the Bible talks about the Messiah coming in power, coming with the angels, coming in majesty and power, coming with the sword. And so their hope was that that's what he was doing um, this time. It, but it was a, a, a passage that most of these guys would know out of Zechariah 9, 9. that says, say to the daughter of Zion, again, a prophecy about the Messiah, see your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So interesting passage, right? Because again, the expectation is he's coming in as the king. Why isn't he coming in the way they expected him to come in? As a matter of fact, the story goes on the other side of Jerusalem about the same time that Pilate was coming to Jerusalem as, as well because he was the ruling authority in that area and he would come into the city to celebrate the Passover, to be there so people could see him during the celebration of the Passover. It's kind of social media of, of their day, right? He was... He was representing, right? And so he came in on a stallion. He would come in with all the Roman soldiers in procession with all the power and the majesty of Rome backing everything that he was doing. So on one side of the city, if you can imagine, you have this, this worldly power, the greatest power that the world had ever known in Rome. And on the other side, a lowly shepherd, or sorry, a lowly carpenter's son coming in on a donkey, on a young donkey, right? So a bit confusing, a bit challenging. 
this was not, for many of those guys, the king or the way the Messiah was coming. It wasn't the, the king that they were expecting. But he was no ordinary king, right? And eventually he goes on to say in John 18, 36, that his kingdom was not of this world. So he was in this world, but not of this world. Isn't that what God calls us to do as Christians, to be in the world, but not, not, not of it? So the people had created this value, this tradition of that literally has lasted up until our day. And many, many churches right now, this morning, they handed out um, palm leaves, <laughs> depending on where you're from. If you're up in Canada, maybe not so much, but you get palm leaves, right? And you would wave them. And even in the Catholic tradition, the palm leaves, once you finished Palm Sunday, you, you, couldn't get, you can't just throw them away. Anybody know what you do? You keep them the entire year, and you bring them back out, and you burn them, and that's the ash that you use in Lent for, for Ash Wednesday that you put on, on your forehead. Anybody ever aware of that? So a lot of tradition, uh, we don't do that in the Protestant church as much. Some traditions still do. But there's a lot of traditions, and so the question is, um, where do they come from? And this is kind of a little bit of an explanation of where Palm Sunday came from. So there's nothing wrong with having traditions. We all know this, but some traditions are good. Some traditions are bad, right? Some traditions are neutral, right? But the question is, do you know where your traditions come from? So why do you do what you do? And I'm talking about in every aspect of life, and most of us wouldn't even know, but you would say something along the lines, and this favorite phrase that the church has had since the beginning of the church, we have always done it that way. Anybody ever been guilty of saying that? <laughs> We've always done it that way. So like I said, not all traditions are bad. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. Um, I heard a preacher talk about uh, values and traditions and why some of them, it's important to know why you believe what you believe. And so he said when he, was, um, when he got married, his wife every Thanksgiving would cut off two inches of the, of, the, of the ham and put it in the oven. And he's like, and she would literally just throw off, you know, all that meat and all that food. He's like, what are you doing? She goes, I don't know. My mom did this. She taught me. So he goes, you know, he happened to be there on, on, on Christmas. He says to mom, hey, you know, your daughter does this. Do you do that? And she says, yeah. He goes, why? She goes, I don't know. My mom taught me. So he goes to grandma. He says, why do you cut off? Obviously, your, your daughter, I mean, the daughter and the granddaughter do it. Why do you do that? And she goes, I don't know why they're doing it. But my oven was really small, so I had to cut two inches off. See how that works? And so again, some, some traditions happen, and we don't know why they are there. Some of us have values, and we don't know why those values are there. So often what I discover just in life in general is very, very few people are self-aware. Right? Very, very few people. We're like we're on track, man. We've, we've been told what we're supposed to do, but we don't know why. You see this in colleges right now. Everybody's protesting. Everybody's, you know, up in arms about everything in, in colleges today. Um, and and they look at the value system. And you're like, where in the whole world do some of these values come from, right? And if you ask them, they would not be able to tell you. But they are bought in 100% as if life depended on them. And that's a dangerous, dangerous place, right? So why, why do you go to church? Are, are there cultural reasons for you to go to church? Um, do you do it because your parents did? Because it's the right thing to do? Because we've always done it that way? I mean, why do you do that? Um, do you know what Scripture actually says about going to church? The Bible actually says you can't go to church because you are the church. So you can't attend you. <laughs> you are the church, right? And when we're gathered in his name, the Bible says he is among us, right? So there's something that happens when you are the church. You can attend a meeting of the church, right? But oftentimes, Karen will call me. She says, where are you? Are you at the church? And I'll say, yes, because culturally, that's what this place is called, right? But it's not. It's just a building. 
It is not holy. Some of you guys call this room the sanctuary, and it is not. Guess, who, guess where the sanctuary is? Right? So again, we, we do this and we get caught up in it. If we're not careful, because we get caught up in believing this concept, it begins to grab hold of us subconsciously and it begins to form our lives and take us in directions that are sometimes very, very unhelp, unhelpful. So where do your traditions come from? In other words, what's the source of your traditions? Because not all traditions have the same value or have equal value. We know that. And here's the thing that we all need to understand, that every culture, regardless of where it comes from, every value comes from some cultural, some, some source that brings about the value. But every culture needs to be submitted to the kingdom culture. That's the nature of what Scripture teaches us. So obviously, if you're a Christian, you should draw your value, values from Scripture, right? But do you know anybody who says, who's a Christian who doesn't do that? Or at least doesn't say they do that, right? Go, you know, anybody remember the Yellow Pages? I know I'm, I'm dating myself. But if you go look up, you know, in the Yellow Pages, you always had this ad, because that's, that's how you knew you'd arrive when you had a full-page ad in the Yellow Pages. But the churches, there's no church that says, come here and we will suck the life out of you, right? We will baptize you in vinegar until you can't hardly see straight, and then we will turn you into twice the son of hell that we are and send you out to contaminate the entire world and keep them from understanding the love of God. You ever seen that ad? Right? But in, in the Bible, Jesus, I mean, Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he said, Your meetings as the church are doing more harm than good. <laughs> right? So here's the thing you can say whatever you want about who you are and what you are and all those things, but who you are and what you are is true regardless of whether you think it is or not. Right? You have a worldview, whether you understand you have a worldview or, or not. You have a, a, a picture of culture, you have a picture of why you do what you do whether you understand that or not. Everybody says that they go back to Scripture. Um, so often Scripture is taken out of context. We talk about that in the tension. We talked about context when we're talking about spiritual maturity in the last series we did. But here's the worst thing. So often what happens is people let the pastors or the priests tell them what their value should be from Scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with pastors. I mean, priests, I, I think the title is, is a misnomer since Jesus has made us all priests, right? So, so I have a little bit of a problem with that, being a Protestant. But, but again, we're supposed to take our values from Scripture. We're supposed to hear from our pastor. We're supposed to hold them in high regard. But it's not arbitrary. It's not because they have a title or a position or a robe or something else. It's got nothing to do with anything. If you were in the military, one of the things you learned in the military, and I, I was in Desert Storm, so I didn't see combat like Vietnam or Afghanistan or some of those other places, but I saw some. And what we discovered was everybody who had lieutenant bars or captain bars or, you know, the officer corps, if you will, who were supposed to be trained, who were supposed to be leaders, who were supposed to know what to do, not all of them did. <laughs> and you'll find out in, in the military very quickly, a lot of the sergeants who had, who've paid in blood, who've paid in time, who've, who've paid their dues, right, they were the guys who were really the leaders, and the lieutenants often were leaders in name only. Why? Not because the lieutenants can't become leaders, and some of them were amazing leaders right out of the get-go. But just because you call yourself a leader or somebody puts a title on you doesn't mean that's what you are. 
So you see this, this concept illustrated in the life of Martin Luther. So most of us know this story. The early 1500s, Martin Luther, was, he was terrified in this lightning storm. Lightning struck really close to him. He, he gets knocked off his horse, and in that moment, he cries out to God, and he promised his life to God. And so later on, he eventually enters a monastery, and what he's looking for is a hope to find assurance of his salvation. He'd prayed the prayer. He'd done what the priest had told him, but for some reason, he could not feel the assurance of being right with God in his own heart. We know this story. He was haunted by insecurity about his salvation. He eventually finds fault with the Catholic leadership of his day. He's become, he's become a priest. He's arrived. He's, he's now debating at the doctorate level. And so um, there's a Dominican friar who comes into his area, and he's preaching indulgences, and he's saying that you can get a letter of indulgence if you pay for this, that in, it entitles you to the forgiveness of sins for yourself or even the forgiveness of sins to someone who's already died right? So this is where that concept of purgatory begins to come into play during this time, right? So it's not biblical, but again, they were still doing it. So why, was, why were they doing it? The Pope had entered into an agreement with that leadership because the Pope said, I need money to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. You can go there now and see it. Part of that was paid for by a lie from the leadership of the church that said you could purchase forgiveness with your money. So Martin Luther said, I don't think that's biblical. Like all of you guys are going, yeah, I don't think it is either. Well, you have the benefit of 500 years of Martin Luther having paid the price to get us here, right? But in his day, he was pretty much by himself. But he gets this idea. He goes, I want to challenge this. And so he did what you did. He put a, a 95 theses. This is all the things that he thinks we need to be debated on. Puts it on the door of, of Whittinghouse Church. And what he's doing is he's saying, I want to debate this. And he started a fire that has been burning for 500 some odd years, right? He changed the entire world. Why? Because he said, hey, why are we doing this? Do we have a good, compelling reason? Is that biblical? Where did this value, where did this tradition come from? So Martin Luther was huge in this. He sparked a conversation about whether these issues were biblical or not. And the, and, and the Protestant Reformation began and changed the entire world literally. So how does this apply to Palm Sunday? Look, we're going to look at John 12, 9, 13. It talks about this. It says, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jesus um, a large crowd of Jesus found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, so they're coming to see Jesus. He's in Bethany, right? They're coming to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. Now, why are they coming to see Lazarus? Because Lazarus was dead, and he is no longer dead. That is a conversation starter, right? Have you met my brother Lazarus? He was dead, and now he's not. Wait, what? Right? So it goes on, it says, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests make plans to kill Lazarus as well. It's like, did you not see what Jesus did when he was dead before? What are, you're going to kill him? What do you think is going to happen? Jesus is just going to raise him back up again, right? <laughs> you, ever, you ever seen the, the, there's a, if you get a chance, go YouTube this if you're, if you're not afraid, okay? Because it's a little bit sacrilegious. But it's called The, the Greatest Action Story Ever Told. And it was, I think it was in the 90s or something like that. And it's about the Terminator coming to Jesus' time and trying to rescue Jesus from Judas. And he kills like Judas like four or five times, and Jesus is like, do you not understand that I'm supposed to die? You're getting in the way of the plans of God, <laughs> right? These were the chief priests. These guys were idiots at best, but they were so bent on what they believed. They believed it with everything that they were, and they were 100% wrong. We look at this now, and we see them as the antagonists. But back then... Jesus was the antagonist. He was the one who was different, right? This was the culture. Jesus was not. 
So again, uh, he, he'd raised Lazarus from the dead, created a stir. The testimony were causing people to come. And then verse 12, um, he says, The next day the crowd had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. And I read this before, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So they recognized him, and the crowd was gathering, including the chief priests. And they're like, the chief priests were nervous, right? Because if he's a prophet, and he's not doing things the way we like him to do it. But if he's the Messiah... Then he's the political king. He's a warrior come. And so now he's going, to he's going to raise up the armies of Israel and he's going to destroy Rome. Right? So he's coming in. He's supposed to come in on a white stallion. He's supposed to come in with a sword and majesty. And what does he do? He comes in on a donkey. This was not the king that they expected. So here's the thing. Peter got a bit of this in his own heart, right? Because again, this is their culture of the day. And you see this in John 18.10. It says, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and stuck the, struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. So these, these guys had come to take Jesus, right? And Jesus had said, this is, this is what's going to happen according to prophecy. This is how God's going to do it. And Peter's like, don't care how God's going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. Here's my sword. I'm going to cut off the guy's ear, so stop me if you, if you can. So what does Jesus do? Picks up the guy's ear, puts it back on his head, we got a miracle, right? He's, he heals the guy who is coming to take him away. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine the, the confusion in Peter's mind at this moment? Remember he said he has this revelation that he's the Messiah, he's the king, Jesus is well done, and then right after that, Jesus starts talking about the cross, and Peter said, no, Lord, you cannot do that. And then Peter rebuked him, and said, get behind me, Satan. A few seconds ago, you had heard from heaven, you were listening to what God was saying, and you were having a revelation, it was changing the way you think, and then in a moment, you switch back to culture, switch back to tradition, switch back to a system of values, you don't even know where it came from, but it was all wrong, right? So, does God have a problem with a sword? Does Jesus have a problem with a sword? Because here's what people say, Jesus was a, pac a pacifist. No, he was not. He was not a pastor. Go read the scripture where he turns over and he whips the, the, the people in who are, who are bringing the money and, and changing money in the temple, right? Go read that passage and, and read it if you can. Go back and study it in the original language. He was not kind. He wasn't whipping them like with his, you know how in the pictures he's always got his fingers like he's holding a sheep and he's always got his hand crooked like this? <laughs> it's not what he looked like that day, I promise you, right? He was a carpenter. He was strong. He was rough. His hands were callous. That was, that was what he grew up doing was hard work because he didn't just work with wood. He worked with stones too, which is why you get so many of the passages about building stones and the cornerstone and all these because that was the way building worked back in his day. He was a construction worker, right? He was not an unmanly man. Let me put it that way. He was not a pacifist by any stretch. Listen, this is an interesting scripture in Luke twenty two thirty six. 36. He said to them, this is after the fact. So Peter comes in, Jesus said, this is the will of God for them to take me, right? This is prophesied. This is all good. This, don't miss this. This seems wrong, but it's not, okay? The circumstances are not telling the whole story. Peter rises up with violence and said, I will do what I want. I will, I will do the kingdom my way. He cuts the guy's ear off and Jesus rebukes him. And then later on, they're getting ready to take the gospel into the world, which means they're gonna travel roads. And back then, 
People would wait in the roads and they would attack you. That's what they did, the robbers on the road. Remember the Good Samaritan? That was a common picture. If you went in, down the wrong road at the, at the wrong time, you were going to get jumped. Luke twenty two thirty six. He said to them, Jesus, but now if you have a purse, not a women's purse. Remember, he was manly. So <laughs> that means a, a thing of money. If you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. So what's he saying? What happened? Why, remember that tension we were talking about in spiritual maturity? Why is it that one moment the sword's bad and the next minute the sword is good? What about guns? That's a big, big problem and big challenge, the stuff we see in, in America today. There's, whole, there's millions and millions of people on one side saying guns are bad, guns are terrible. Let's take, take all the guns away. Now, anybody who knows, who has a, a mind about that, you're only going to take it away from the ones who are willing to give them. The people who are not going to give the guns, you're not getting their guns from them. They're going to keep them. They get them illegally, they're going to keep them illegally. This is kind of how that works, right? Got a group on the other side says, look, give everybody guns. The five-year-olds, let's shoot, you know, everything. <laughs> Texas, hold them, only don't hold them. Shoot them, right? <laughs> so you have these two sides of the coin. And the tension is Jesus saying, don't use violence to, to further the kingdom of God. Hear what God is saying. We talked about this during worship time. What is God saying for you to do? What's the season you're in? There's a time for war. There's a time for peace. You see this in Scripture. So you can't lean into Jesus as just a pacifist because that's not true. But was he sometimes acting in the way a pacifist would act? 100% yes. But were there other times where he was violent? And even said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. He's not talking about taking it by Violence, that's not what he says. The violent, the people who have the attitude in their heart to take, to take the kingdom, to see the kingdom advance, he said they take it by force. What is he saying? They're connected with God and they're going out in the, in the, in the plan that God has and they're acting in ways that sometimes upsets the culture. So Jesus talking to Pilate, John 18, 36, right after that, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So here's Jesus talking to the man who came in on the other side of the city on a massive horse and he came in on a donkey. Don't, 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 get, don't lose this. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. Listen to what he said. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. In actual fact, one of my servants did fight, and I had to rebuke him, right? Because my kingdom's not of this world. But now, my kingdom is from another place. It's supernatural, above nature. It's bigger than politics. It's bigger than nations. It's bigger than culture. It's bigger, right? St. Augustine reflected this idea when he said, idolatry is worshiping anything that was meant to be used or using anything that was meant to be worshiped. See the juxtaposition? If we get it wrong, we can do it in the name of God and be 100% wrong. If we do it right, everybody in the world can be against us and Jesus being for us. So it matters. It matters why you believe what you believe. Peter had it backwards. The kingdom didn't submit to him or his ideas with the sword, but he had to submit himself and his ideas to the kingdom. And that's what God is asking of you and I. So what kind of king did you expect? He has a way of shattering our assumptions. One of his famous sayings, Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you, why? Because he was God. He was taking the old covenant is he, and he was interpreting it in the big picture. So often we grab the Ten Commandments and make that our rule for life. You know why we do that? Why we like rules so much? Because we don't actually need a relationship with God 
if we have a relationship with rules. And why it's so difficult, even as a believer, to have a relationship with God that is intimate, especially for a man. I'm just being honest about that. It's a big challenge. So again, you see this in Matthew 5, 21, 27. It's all over the place. So here, here's the picture again, Zechariah 9, 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And again, conquering kings physically rode in on chariots, but Jesus did not do that. He was humble. He was not going to be made a political leader. What about now? Trump's the new Jesus. Right? Listen, before we get into the political argument, that's part of the problem. We can't look at Trump and go, he's just a guy. Is he amazing in a million different ways? Yep. Is he, is he a, a, a catalyst for, you know, splitting the divide? 100% he is. Whatever you think about him, he ain't Jesus. <laughs> right? Does that mean you shouldn't vote for him? No. I'm not telling you who to vote for. What I'm saying is that you can't make the kingdom of heaven a political kingdom. You can't do that. Now, don't, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. Find out, vote the way God calls you to vote. And I don't mean your perspective. I mean vote according to the kingdom of God, right? Does that mean you can't vote for somebody who's not a Christian? Of course not, because the Bible talks about Cyrus the king, who is not a Christian at all, was used of God to help rebuild the the city of Jerusalem and bring the people of God back into wholeness. So God can use broken leaders to do amazing things for his kingdom. But don't make it, you know, the same thing equal to Jesus or the kingdom. Don't do that. Don't do it online. Don't do it on Facebook or Twitter. Don't do it. But don't be ignorant of the enemy's devices either and vote accordingly. So here's the other thing that Jesus did or didn't do. He didn't judge us. This was, again, not expected. The the disciples wanted Jesus to judge some people. They called him like, what about this guy? They're not doing it right. And Jesus said, you leave them alone. They're They're not preaching it exactly the way they ought to, but if they're not against me, they're for me. That's what he said, right? So the only one who could judge us is the very one who didn't, right? He paid for our sin rather than leaving us in it. He was the one person who could say, I've had enough, I'm going to kill you all and start over fresh. <laughs> he could have done that, but he didn't, right? So let me close with this. Why do you do what you do? Why, what do you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? Most of us are on autopilot, but have you examined your values? Do you know why you believe the way you do? Do you know what your worldview is? Could you express it? If someone says, what do you believe about the world? Could you express that? Could you articulate who Jesus is, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to worship, what it means to be the church, your role in the kingdom, the mission that God has called us on together as the local church? Can you talk about that with any kind of intelligence? Do you know what you believe? Do you even know that you have a worldview? This is the most dangerous person, is the person who doesn't realize that they have a worldview. Everybody has a worldview, whether they know it or not, right? And if you don't know what it is, it's a really bad one because it's been formed by all kinds of opinions, all kinds of culture, all kinds of forces. And if you don't examine that, you can't adjust that to believe the way the kingdom calls us to believe. So this is what I want to do. I want to challenge you to follow Jesus. Jesus you don't see Jesus asking people to pray the sinner's prayer. Nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. But you don't see Jesus doing that. You know what Jesus said to every person he came to? He said, anybody know what he said? Follow me. 
So what did he mean? Just walk around in the wilderness with me? Walk around to cities with me? Walk? And the answer is, yeah, he physically did that. But what was he asking them to do, really? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. This was the call. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Here's what he's saying. He's like, at some point, as you follow me, you're going to see my yoke. You're going to see what I'm asking of you. You're going to see that I'm asking you to lay some things down, and you're going to see that I'm asking you to pick some things up. You need to make a decision what you're going to do with that yoke. You take my yoke upon you. You are the only one who can do that. No one can put a yoke on you. You choose. Here's the thing. Everybody has a yoke. Don't, don't, be, don't misunderstand this. You think, oh, I'm, choo- I'm not choosing Jesus. I'm neutral. No, you are not. There is no neutral. Right? And that's what Jesus said. If you're not for me, you're against me. If you're not against me, you're for me. That's what he's going after. But come with an o- open heart. Come with a teachable spirit. Silence your expectations. Stop saying, God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. It's a really bad way to get to know God, right? He said, learn of me. That's what he says. I will give you rest, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The experience is, as a disciple, the word literally means learner. It means to walk with him, to learn of him, to see what he's like. Everybody, everybody is going to make a decision about what they're going to do with the Son of God. Everybody will. That's what the Bible teaches, right? The learning is more than the learning of facts. It's personal. It's about how to live and how to be. We've heard this before. We are human beings, not human doings, right? It's about more than hearing Jesus' words. It's about becoming like him in every way, in his character, becoming like Jesus in his character, letting this new understanding of who he is and who I am, let it transform me into Jesus, to look like Jesus, to be like Jesus in every way, but also to walk in the same actions, to move in the ministry of the Spirit the way Jesus did, to walk up to someone and look at them and have from the Spirit God say, this is what they're dealing with. We challenge our leaders this morning in prayer time, this morning during worship, as God leads you to go pray for someone, be ready to hear the Lord for someone else. Let God use you as a catalyst for his love to pour into other people. And the more we do that, the more God works through me, the the more he works in me. So again, be who Jesus was, do what Jesus did. It's not knowing about Jesus, but it's about knowing Jesus. That word in the original language means intimacy. A man knew his wife, and something from that intimacy, the seed of that intimacy creates something. This is the picture that God is saying, I want you to know me. What Jesus did enables us to do that. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, this is what the Bible says. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So Paul's writing this to a church. Examine yourself. See whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Listen, unless, of course, you failed the test. Don't assume that because you have been in church your whole life that you know Jesus. Next week, we're going to have, hopefully, a bunch of people who come have been invited. I've invited a few people, and some of them said they're going to come, right? That's my hope, my prayer. And they're going to get exposed to the love of God through what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection and what all that means. And everybody has to make a decision about what they're going to do with their life. I remember when this happened to me, everything changed. I had a, I had a direction. I was going to become, uh, you know, an architect. I, I knew the size house. I was going to have an SUV. You know, you have all things you have to I had wear really nice boots with really clean jeans and, a, you know, and a press shirt. 
that never got dirty. That was, my, that was my vision in life. And God changed all that. The day I met him, he's like, I want you to lay your life down and pick mine up. Why? Because at some point in Jesus' life, he had laid his life down so he could pick me up. And that same thing is going to happen. So the question comes really, for, for me anyway, I walked even as a Christian for years, this low-grade fever of guilt, shame, and condemnation. So I've just been closed with this, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 8.3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did this. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering on my behalf. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the question always comes back to, are you in Christ? Not do you know about him. Did you grow up in church? Your culture. I have some understanding of who Jesus was. That's totally fine. That's great. But are you in Christ? Have you trusted? Have you put your faith in Christ? Romans 20 says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and listen, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what is it that you need to do? You have to place your trust in Jesus. And the Bible talks about as a Christian at some point, you have to stop living according to the flesh. What does that mean? You have to stop living according to the natural way. The culture, church culture, family culture, any culture, all of it has to submit to the kingdom culture. And then you walk, you begin to walk, the Bible says, in the spirit, not in the flesh or in the natural. Here's the whole story. This is just a simple way of putting it. This is Mark Deaver, and I'm going to read this and I'm going to pray. He says, the good news is the one and only God who is holy made us in his image to know him. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of us all. Those who would ever turn and trust in him, he rose again from the dead. We're going to celebrate that next week, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. He now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God that doesn't end here but lives forever. So let me put it succinctly. When we were worshiping, was that foreign to you? Because in heaven, that's all we're going to do. The Bible says it paints a picture. There's a sea of people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, who have come to know Christ, who are in Christ, who are now connected to the Father. There's an intimacy and a connection to the Father and to us as his sons and daughters in Christ. There's a connection, and it'll never go away. From that, I don't know what's next, but I know this. If being in the presence of God, if worshiping God, if being on mission for God is foreign to you now, what do you think heaven is going to be like? So here's the thing. If that is foreign to you, I would challenge you, like Paul told the Corinthians, if that concept is foreign to you, to examine yourself and to see whether you are in the faith. 
Remember what Martin Luther did? Martin Luther doubted his salvation. Why? Because up until that moment, it was all about the things that he would do to make God love him and accept him. And he could never do enough. He crawled up those steps, it said, the, the steps of the, of the St. Peter's Basilica on his knees until his knees bled because he knew he could never pay fully for his sins. And then he, ran, he read a passage in Romans that totally changed him and the rest of the world forever, took us back to what Jesus said and the disciples had been preaching 1,500 years before. The just shall live by faith. What does that mean? It means they believed that Jesus is saving them. What he did on the cross, he did for them. Why? Because we were estranged from our Heavenly Father. And what Jesus did made a way for us to come back to him. But hear this. It's not automatic. Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Right? What is your real life relationship with Jesus? And I want to challenge you, again, if you've been in church your whole life and you don't know that, it's a good thing to examine that because it's the only thing that's going to matter eternally. So I want to pray for us. And just as we do this, if that's somewhere you've been, you're like, Lord, I'm not sure. The Bible says you can come to me. That's what he says. Come to me all your labor. If you're trying to work it out in your own strength, quit all that foolishness and trust in the finished work of what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf. Amen? So Jesus, thank you, Lord, for your kindness and for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you challenge culture, Lord, because you know that so often our culture can set our values, Lord, and you don't want that to happen. So, Lord, make us different. Moses said, Lord, as the people of Israel, as he led the people of Israel, Lord, if you don't go up with us, we don't want to go. So, Lord, here's the thing. If we can't be different, Lord, if we can, can't be different than the world, why would the world ever want to come to you? So, Lord, would you change us? Would you draw us near? Karen preached about longing last week, Lord. Would you put a longing, Lord? Would we cultivate that in our own abilities, Lord, and the things that we could lean into to give you time, Lord, to give you space, to worship when we're not in service on a Sunday, to think about you, to read, Lord, to pray, to do the disciplines of a disciple, Lord, so that we can get to know you, so we can learn of you, so we can come to you and know you better and know you deeper. Lord, make that our heart long after you, like the deer pants after the water. Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, our team would love to pray for you. Otherwise, have a great week. Don't forget to invite somebody to Easter service next Sunday. Thank you.